We press on rapidly. We halt at a little brook, then ascend the long slope of a naked ridge, the very last of the myriads we've crossed. We arrive at the summit, travel across, and arrive at its western rim, and Galilee is below us, embowered in the palms, only 500 yards from us. At this grand moment, we don't think of the hundreds of miles we've marched, for example, to get to the Decapolis from the Sea of Galilee, we had to go 247 miles out of our way to Tyre and Sidon, but you can't blame us, we were merely following the itinerary laid out in Mark's Gospel. And at this grand moment, we also don't think of the hundreds of lepers and demoniacs we've encountered for some reason. How could there be this many lepers and demoniacs in such a small region? We don't think of the hundreds of synagogues that we've passed, which I was under the impression that those weren't built yet in the first century. We don't think of the 1,500 times that we spent crossing and recrossing the same inland sea, again following Mark's gospel itinerary, the hundreds of times we were stopped and accosted by platoons of Pharisees that demanded to know why we weren't washing our hands, or why we were picking heads of grain, or why we had heterodox opinions about divorce. A modern dictatorship could only wish for such an efficient gendarmerie. We don't think of the many forests we've traversed, of the jungles and thickets that annoyed us, of the hot suns that scorched us, nor the dangers and difficulties now happily surmounted. Our hearts and our feelings are with our eyes, as we peer into the palms and try to make out in which hut or house lives the minimal historical man with the dark beard, whom we read about on Bart Ehrman's inexplicably paywall New Testament blog. We are now about 300 yards from the village of Capernaum, or is it Nazareth, or is it some other unnamed town, and the crowds are dense about me. Suddenly, I hear a voice on my right say, Good morning, sir. Startled at hearing this greeting in English in the midst of such a crowd of first-century Judeans, but very accustomed to flagrant anachronisms by now, I turn sharply around in search of the man and see him at my side, with the most nondescript of faces, but animated and joyous. A man dressed in an ankle-length tunic, without a coat, with no bag, no bread, no money in his belt. And I ask, who the mischief are you? I am Peter, the servant of Jesus, said he, smiling. What? Is he here? Yes, sir. In this village? Yes, sir. Are you sure? Sure, sure, sir. Why, I left him just now. He sent me to go pay the temple tax with money that we stole from a fish. As I was... Trying to make sense of what he just said, the head of the expedition halted and said to me, I see the prophet, slash revolutionary, slash marginal peasant, slash preacher, slash crypto messiah, slash proto rabbi, slash healer, slash Pharisee, slash Essene, slash wandering miracle worker, sir. Oh, what a nebulous man. He's got a beard, I guess. He looks to be about 30, or is it 50? My heart beats fast, but I mustn't let my face betray my emotions, lest it detract from the dignity of a 21st century Christ mythicist appearing under such extraordinary circumstances. So I did what I thought was most dignified. I pushed back the crowds, very vast and idle crowds for a region with a subsistence economy, I noted, and passing from the rear, walked down a living avenue of people until I came in front of the semicircle of Judeans, in the front of which stood the minimal historical man with the beard. As I advanced slowly toward him, I noticed he was nondescript, with a nondescript expression, and wore nondescript clothes. I would have run to him, only I was a coward in the presence of such a mob, would have embraced him, 
Only he, being a Galilean, not to mention mythical, I didn't know how he'd receive me. So I did what cowardice and false pride suggested was the best thing. Walked deliberately to him, took off my hat, and said, Those who walk on water reside in the realm of mythology. Gnostics called the literal resurrection the faith of fools. What you are is a follower of Eusebius. Your presuppositions are not safe here. It's in the Gospel of Judas. You're listening to Born in the Second Century, and it's now 5 p.m. on December 15th, 2021. This is episode 18 of the show, which is a show, and it's my show, and it's a good show, and it's about late Christianity, hosted by Chris Palmero in an audio format. The music for today's broadcast was provided by the recording group Pompeii Gray. The show is actually recorded at 5 p.m. That's not just a Fifth Element reference. Please ensure that you support the Patreon at patreon.com slash born in the second century. You can access short monthly bonus shows at the $5 level of support. Last month, the show was a critique of Bart Ehrman's comments about the date of Paul and his letters, a subject that we will be revisiting shortly in this Bright in the Corners miniseries. For the December bonus show, we'll broadcast the lost episode one of Born in the Second Century, my first attempt at introducing the concept of the show last year. It went much more into the background of New Testament scholarship, and I decided for various reasons that I wanted different material to be covered in the very first show, so within a day or two, I pulled it down and I recorded a brand new episode one. And to my knowledge, no more than 20 people on earth have listened to that first version of episode one. But it won't all be previously recorded content in this month's bonus show. I'll also be doing an intro talking about the background of Born in the Second Century in general and how the first episode was conceived and created and what that whole process was. I'm actually considering the idea of two bonus shows a month. That's still in the works. And right now the producer is hearing that for the first time and saying, what the... And we want to welcome our newest supporter. Thank you to Scott. The ministry of his service is fully supplying the needs of the saints. And those needs largely consist of books that are used for research materials. Like Marcus Vincent's book about Marcion costs $99. I mean, what's going on over there? Top news story this week. Born in the second century has a listener in Malta. And when I first saw that, I was like, oh, cool. Then I thought about it for a minute and I was like, oh shit. See, before I only had to worry about online apologists trying to dox me. Now I got the sovereign order of St. John of the hospital on my ass. So I said on a previous show that this podcast would only end at my death. Well, now we know how that death will come. I'm gonna get murked by a crusader assassin with a scimitar. Well, I already screwed up by using my real name here and leaving all these hints about my location. So the only option I have is to start doing this show from an undisclosed location. I'm going to be broadcasting on shortwave from a shack in the Alkali Flats like Krusty the Clown holding up a battery and a scorpion as my guest host. So that's troubling. We continue the Bright in the Corners miniseries, the broad overview on the New Testament and its individual books, their dating and authorship. We'll explore the theories of the fundamentalists and of the mainstream theologians and the date and attribution of each book and comment on them. Last time, we reviewed the theory of David Trobish that the New Testament appeared as a compilation for the first time in the late second century with all or nearly all of the familiar 27 books contained in it. And part of his theory 
was that the arrangement and titles of the books were conscious decisions by the editors of the First New Testament, decisions that they made to help unify disparate material. The focus of Born in the Second Century is on the dates of the Christian texts and of Christian origins generally. And I'm now at the point where I can say that I'm probably one of a very few in the world that focuses exclusively on these dates, and here's why I think it doesn't get the attention it deserves. Right now, online, if you encounter someone who's talking about Christianity from a position of skepticism, the odds are that they don't believe that Jesus was mythical. But they also don't believe in the religious narrative of the New Testament. What they really want to spend their time doing is redefining Jesus and denying the religious aspects of him that are so important to Christian believers. They want to knock down the Jesus of faith and replace him with the Jesus of history, which in their mind is like a kind of a boring peasant revolutionary, like a Hellenistic Jewish Maoist who was misunderstood during his life and was reimagined after his death as fulfilling the promises of the prophets and the apocalyptic. But their picture of Jesus is not actually novel. It's derived completely from the New Testament. It's like, read the New Testament while covering one eye, and you'll come up with the same view of Jesus as most online skeptics do. And in order to construct this milk toast minimum historical Jesus, they also need the New Testament books to be independent and early, just as the believers do. Because think about it. If I'm taking on a Christian believer in an argument, and I start by saying the Gospel of John was written in 145 AD, that's first of all. Second of all, you know, at that point, the Christian can just cut me off and say that that's not the consensus date. The consensus date is 100 AD. And then I've lost credibility in the argument to them. But if you begin by accepting the consensus date, as most online skeptics do, then you can engage the Christian on their own turf when you argue with them. And you could say things like, sure, the Gospel of John was written in 100, but even still, it has all these problems. And the Jesus that's depicted in it is largely a creation of the author. It, that is more effective if you're trying to turn a Christian believer's world upside down and deny them their Jesus paradigm, then questioning the dates or the provenance of the books would be. But I can't ignore the question of the date of these texts in good conscience, and I don't care about debating and refuting individual Christian believers online. And I can't ignore the question of dates because for one thing, the way that these dates have traditionally been assigned by the theologians is terrifyingly dicey, as we'll see. And the other thing, is that when you look at Christian writings that can be securely dated, like those from the 160s, 170s, and later, most of the time, those writings are found to still be dealing with the same exact problems as the Gospels and the letters are. They're still trying to differentiate themselves from Judaism on the foundational level. How is this still a live issue if the Gospels and letters were supposed to have been written three or four generations before these guys? Therefore, it seems far more likely that the Gospels and the Epistles were written and disseminated only shortly before the time of Justin and Tatian and these other figures of the mid-2nd century. They were produced by clerical authors at a local level who were using literary and epistolary fiction to accomplish the very same things that Justin and Tatian and the rest of those guys were trying to do. Differentiate themselves, define the in-group and out-group, strictly define Jesus in the interest of the sect, and these fictional writings somehow floated up to the desk of these early theologians and they accepted them as ancient, despite not knowing anything about how they were composed. And the proof of that is when we look at how Irenaeus treats the New Testament in the 190s, and we went into this somewhat last time. We suggested that the New Testament debuted as a collection shortly before him, but from the first sentence of his book and almost every paragraph thereafter, he quotes almost all the New Testament books by name. He's deeply familiar with them, 
in a way that even Christians who wrote a mere 10 years before him absolutely are not. So we know that the New Testament recently debuted before him, but he never says like, hey, thank God for this newfangled New Testament, am I right? Makes it real easy to quote these books now that they're all in one place. No, it's almost as if he pretends that the New Testament had always existed. He never references the time period before it, never references what it was like to be a bishop prior to the New Testament being put together. He doesn't ever talk about how writers from before him, the ones he knows about, like Justin and First Clement, he never brings up the fact that those guys didn't know the gospel authors, never explains why their gospel quotes are so jumbled and strange, never explains how exactly it is that he is the first person to know about most of these New Testament books and to know their names. In other words, he is being deceptive. And if I had to guess why, I would say that he probably knew how the sausage was made. He may have had a hand in creating the New Testament, putting these books together and coming up with their titles. So it's not too much of a stretch for us to say that when Justin Martyr is quoting the Gospels in his peculiar, mongrelized way back in the 150s, that these Gospels could have been written only shortly before his time. And the fact that he's treating them as ancient and apostolic could be either out of deception, as in the case of Irenaeus, or ignorance. So we have ample scope to question the first century dating of the New Testament books. And never forget about that dark age that I talked about at the beginning of episode 10. If you accept the first century dates of the New Testament books, you have to explain why between the year 100 and about 150, we have almost no written record of the church's development in that entire period. So we need to talk about dates. And long after we've passed beyond this point in our culture where it's still relevant to go online and argue with conservatives about who the real Jesus was, long after the Daily Beast stops paying theologians to write articles about why the conservative view of Jesus is wrong, long after MSNBC stops inviting the minimum Jesus theologians on their shows, the question of the dating of these texts will still be open. And it's open right now. And these online skeptics, the last thing they ever want to discuss is the dating of these books. They treat it as a settled issue. And so I'm at the point where I'm talking past them. I want to demonstrate to you as the listener how flimsy the dating and attribution arguments for these books are, and we'll begin that process today. We'll focus on the Gospel of Mark, and we'll continue with the rest of the New Testament books in order in subsequent episodes. Now, we did touch somewhat on the dating of Mark in episode four, but first of all, it's always good to revisit these topics, and second, we're going much more in-depth this time, and third, it's necessary to discuss Mark first because Matthew and Luke depend on it. The question that we should be asking is whether we have any confidence in the traditional dating methods for Mark, whether we're getting them from the fundamentalists or from the mainstreamers. Back after this. I think everyone should agree that the dating of the New Testament books matters. I mean, these aren't generic Greco-Roman texts where the author is complaining about corruption or decadence, where it was the fashion throughout the entire history of the empire to complain about those things, and therefore the specific date doesn't really matter. In these Christian books, the authors are describing a specific movement that we are required to place in its historical context. 
Like it matters whether Matthew was written in 85 AD as opposed to it being written in 45 or 145. It, like that should not be controversial, but in any New Testament introduction, the theologian writing it will often only spend a paragraph or two on the date of the book. Most New Testament introductions are a kind of a rhetorical analysis and they try to suss out what the author's intention was, try to pick up the through line of his argument and maybe identify a setting in life for the book that way. But to me, the date of the book should be preliminary to all that. You want to know the reason why New Testament introductions focus so little on date? It's because they begin with the assumption that all the texts were written in the first century. But that, in fact, ends up being very inconvenient and very constraining, as we'll see hundreds of times in this miniseries, so they gloss over it. And they try to use rhetorical analysis to make the text fit into a first century setting. And if the text can't easily fit into a first century setting, they declare that to be a difficult New Testament problem and move on. A good example of this would be 1 Corinthians 2, where the author is found to be using terminology that really only makes sense in the context of second century Gnosticism. Now, someone like me would say, maybe the letter was written in the second century, or maybe only that part of the letter was written in the second century. Well, the theologians can't abide that. It would overturn too many of their assumptions. And so they do a detailed rhetorical analysis, which is really just a blizzard of words to snow under these difficult problems. It's like maybe if we write enough words, the problem will go away. So we have to do our own work on the dating of these texts. I'm almost at the point where I would advise you to only listen to a theologian on the dating of a Christian book if they are going against the consensus. I know that that's somewhat extreme, but a severe corrective action of some kind is required here. But how can we set up our own paradigm for assigning dates to the New Testament books? The first thing we have to recognize is that the writings aren't quoted until very late. Most of them, the majority of them, only after the New Testament itself was released as a complete collection. Justin Martyr in the 150s does quote some of the Gospels in bastardized forms, and we'll get into that. But the second thing to recognize is that if a text seems like it was written early, and here I'm thinking specifically of Acts of the Apostles, we cannot discount the possibility that the author was writing it in such a way as to make it appear that it was early. And I'm reminded of the movie Requiem for a Dream. It was based on a novel from the 1970s, and if you've read that, you know that it, it could not be more from the 1970s. I mean, the slang, the cultural references, but when you watch the film, it's not quite clear what time period the story takes place in. Some of the sets do look old and ponderous, but you just get the sense that that's because the characters all live in a rundown neighborhood. Some of the 1970s slang from the book is preserved word for word, like Marlon Wayans says dynamite at one point, but I don't know, maybe that can be explained by the characters just being weird, like maybe that's cool to them, but with the weight of all these things, we ultimately have to conclude that the film setting in time was something that was unsettling to the director. It seems that he rather wanted to make the movie and the story timeless so that the audience could better identify with it. And so his instinct was to de-emphasize any reference to the setting in time, to flatten the dimension of time. And we see that in Acts and also in the Gospels, where the fact that this is all taking place in the time of John the Baptist and Pontius Pilate seems almost incidental. John and Pilate are artifacts in the landscape, like the ruins of Coney Island in Requiem for a Dream. And the stories themselves are no help. They have no temporal logic whatsoever. In those days, John the Baptist was preaching by the river. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee. Then immediately he goes into a town. And then immediately he sees a leper. And the next morning he goes out from there. 
And then three days later, he encounters a large and moving Torg. And one day while walking, he encounters another threat, that of a giant slore. So it, it's stuff like that. But we can't fault the Gospels too, too much for being written this way and not giving really any clues as to their dating. You know, because the fact is that Mark was the one who screwed everything up by writing the first gospel in the way that he did. He basically started with a cold open and then tried to do like Yodorovsky's remake of Second Kings, but set it in the time of Herod Antipas and the rest of the gospel authors were essentially forced to work with it. So the gospels are what they are. And Acts of the Apostles is a masterpiece of time flattening. This book will often stick with a narrative that goes day by day, but then sometimes it jumps a couple weeks, sometimes a few months. Sometimes the author will even sneak in a two years went by, and eventually the story, which is supposed to begin in around 30 AD, ends in the mid-60s AD, with really no indication by the writer that he'd been jumping ahead that far in time. By the time you get to the end of the book, you feel like you've just taken JJ 180. Uh, that's one of the primary reasons not to take Acts of the Apostles seriously as a historical source, this chicanery on the part of the author, where he covers a 35-year timescale in 28 chapters, but the majority of the text is a blow-by-blow -blow account of this guy said this, and then this guy said this. And the behavior and the language of the characters is so consistent throughout that you have almost no indication that an entire generation of humans was born and reached adulthood over the course of the book. But where we see this time flattening the most is in the New Testament epistles, including Paul's letters. And I covered this somewhat in the Pliny series, especially episode 13. Would it have killed the author of 1 Peter to give us any reference to a contemporary event, or even a hint of one. The letter of James addresses hot-button issues that this author sees as affecting the church. Did none of these tie into any contemporary events that he could have referenced? Even events that we didn't otherwise know about, like internal events within local churches. Paul's letters talk frequently about persecution. Bless those who persecute you, he says in Romans 12. No mention of who's doing the persecuting, not a proconsul named. The Romans in general aren't even implicated. The letter to the Hebrews says in chapter 10, You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Sir, what the hell are you talking about? He doesn't give any background on this, and, and you can argue that this is a letter being addressed to a specific church. Certainly they know what the author is referring to, but in reality, Hebrews is a treatise of treatises. There are three things that are certain in life. And the third thing is that the letter to the Hebrews was written for a universal audience. So there's no excuse for this. Doesn't it seem that, like Darren Aronofsky, who directed Requiem for a Dream, that these authors are so self-conscious about the setting and time in which they write that they are going out of their way to conceal it? The fact that it's not easy to date the New Testament books, and in fact, none of them can be dated to a certainty, none of them, the fact that it's so difficult to date them is suspicious in and of itself if they were meant to be simple histories, simple biographies, and simple letters. In that case, they would follow standard Greco-Roman procedures where the author would introduce himself, brag about himself, talk about what sources he used, which ones he liked best, which ones he didn't like, and a lot of times, Greco-Roman authors would keep doing that throughout the book. It rather looks as if we're reading self-consciously crafted Hellenistic Jewish diaspora religious texts that are actively trying to conceal their provenance. If they were really as innocently primitive as the theologians claim, then they would be self-evidently primitive. There wouldn't be a question of when and where to put the Gospel of Mark, or there would barely be a question. And if you believe that a book like Mark was written within the lifetime of the followers of Jesus, then the author fulfilled one of his objectives. He tricked you. It happens. 
and it's happened for far too long to far too many. Now, there is a point at which the dating of Christian authors becomes secure. I call it the stability margin. Justin Martyr represents himself as writing in the 150s and the 160s. That, in and of itself, is not a guarantee that he wrote in the 150s and 160s, but authors who represent themselves as writing a generation later know and quote Justin's books. And once you pass the stability margin, which is in the late second century, you find that most Christians writing after this date are properly attested. Tertullian, Hippolytus, Clement of Alexandria all know Irenaeus. So his books were written before their time. Their books are known in turn by later authors and so on. So that's our stability margin beginning around the 160s. To the right of it, we can date most everything with reasonable confidence. To the left of it, we can date nothing with confidence. And I regret to inform you that all of the New Testament books fall on the left side of the stability margin, and not only them. Ignatius, First Clement, Barnabas, the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Letter of Polycarp, the Canon of Muratori, the Diatessaron, the Infancy Gospels, the Apocalypse of Peter, they all fall to the left of it as well. And the problem is that it is these very books of Ignatius and these others that are used to assign reference dates to the New Testament books. Like, let's take Ignatius, for example. We'll find in this series that his letters are used to assign dates to things like the Gospel of Matthew and Paul's letter to the Ephesians, even the Gospel of Luke. And the traditional date that theologians give to him is usually in about 110. But as we can see, that date is to the left of the stability margin. There's no internal or external evidence that would securely put Ignatius in 110. In point of fact, the first time a letter of Ignatius is definitely quoted, it is by Irenaeus in the 190s. And not only that, he doesn't even reveal the name of the author he's quoting. He literally calls him a certain man of ours. And not only that, his quote does not 100% match what we actually find written in Ignatius. So you always have to keep this stability margin in mind. And this is incredibly important to discuss here because if anyone were to take this episode to a theologian, in which I'm talking about late dates, I guarantee that the theologian would say, well, his dates for the books are too late because Polycarp quotes a lot of these books in the 130s or the 140s. And it's like, they have no basis to place things like the letter of Polycarp in the early time period in which they do. They are engaging in guesswork based on legends because guess who the first person was who mentions the letter of Polycarp? Correct, is Irenaeus again. And this time, he doesn't even bother to quote it. He just says that there's a most excellent letter of Polycarp that you can read while you're killing time waiting for your Hellenistic oil change. And these authors to the right of the stability margin are the very first to show awareness of a lot of these New Testament books. And they're certainly the first to know the names for the books. If the New Testament books were written way back in the first century, what were they doing sitting around for 120 years before people started getting the idea to quote from them by name? And that's what I want us to always be keeping in mind when we look at the dating of these books. The theologian Richard Pervo said, quote, dating early Christian writings is a bit like artillery fire control. After establishing a bracket by salvos that successively straddle the target, the battery commander seeks to refine the range until the projectiles begin to strike the target. In scholarship, the brackets are the terminus a quo, or the limit from which, or the earliest possible date, and the terminus ante quem, the limit before which, or the latest possible date, end quote. That's from his book, Dating Acts, 
And so whenever you're assigning a date to an ancient book, you look at these terminus dates, the terminus a quo, the terminus ante quem. What's the earliest possible date it could have been written and the latest possible date? And you triangulate from there. If an ancient book references Augustus Caesar as Roman emperor, then it had to have been written in or after the first year of his reign. So that would be the terminus a quo. If the same book was first quoted by someone in the year 200, then 200 would be the terminus antequem, the latest possible date it could have been written. But it's not often that simple. You may actually have to guess the latest possible date, as is famously done with the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel purports to be an ancient prophecy, but the author is predicting the repression of the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanes, sometimes in extreme detail, but he shows no knowledge of how the conflict actually ended in real history. So we could suppose a terminus antequem that's before the death of Antiochus, before the Maccabean revolt, but in doing so, we have to be somewhat careful. It's not guaranteed that it was written before those events, but it's reasonably likely that it was, given what we know about the apocalyptic genre. So this is what you have to consider. It's not always so cut and dry establishing these terminus dates, but in this episode, we're gonna use this method and we're also gonna look at how theologians in the past have used it. We'll begin with Mark's gospel. Back after this. So let's take up the Gospels. Mark, Matthew, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. And synoptic means in this context, something like seeing together, as in they cover a lot of the same material and a lot of the same words. And that term comes from the 1700s. The main product of the 18th century was not something like spices or silk or grain or cotton. It was neologisms that were based on Greek or Latin words. By the way, Look how long it took for people to notice that there were such verbal similarities between the Synoptic Gospels and to propose that Mark was therefore written first. We had to wait until 1782. Think that's long enough? But in dating the four canonical Gospels as a whole, we don't see them quoted under their known titles until after we pass that stability margin that we talked about. After the 190s, People like Irenaeus will say that they're quoting Mark and they'll give a quote that's indisputably from Mark or Theophilus of Antioch in the same time period will do the same thing for the Gospel of John and so on. But we do get some hints in the literature that some form of the Synoptic Gospels was floating around in the middle of the second century before the stability margin. And I think everyone should agree that when we're establishing our terminus dates for these books, when we're laying down that opening salvo of artillery fire, we should begin by looking at when the books are first unambiguously quoted and preferably quoted by their known title. But before that, we have to talk about P52. You may have heard of P52, a scrap of papyrus, which is a fragment of John's gospel. It includes John 1831 through 33 on one side, John 1837 through 38 on the other. We're told that it dates to about 125 AD. If you heard on my bonus show, the interview with Bart Ehrman conducted by Holy Kool-Aid, Holy Kool-Aid appears to just assume that this fragment of John's gospel dates to 125 AD when he brings it up in a question. So as you can see from that, this dating of P52 is very common. 
And if you believe that P52 comes from 125 AD, the obvious implication is that all four gospels had to have been written before 125 AD because it's generally agreed that John is the last of the four to have been written. Uh, Even though theologians nowadays, this is a modern trend, they try to claim that the gospel of John is not aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here, when they cite this little scrap of toilet paper to put John before 125 AD, They, for some reason, include all four canonical gospels in that dating, even though elsewhere, they claim that John had nothing to do with the other three. Now, this here is one of many examples of how the approach of biblical studies is structured based on the needs of religious apologetics. It's like that Downing Street memo where it said, the facts are being fixed around the policy. But on the dating of P52, it may not surprise you that, in actuality, it's not even close to being a sure thing. And its dating is based on paleography, that is ascertaining its probable date through the style of the handwriting. So let's now bring in Brent Nongbri, scholar of early Christianity, but primarily an expert on ancient manuscripts, in his article entitled The Use and Abuse of P52 from the Harvard Theological Review. He says that when P52 was published in the 1930s, on the very day that it was published, theologians rejoiced at the fact that it demonstrated an early date for John's gospel, You have to understand that there had been a war going on since the 19th century in which a very prominent school of critics argued for late dates for the Gospels, pseudonymity of many of the New Testament books, and this P52 was seen as a kind of a death charge which would put that school and their arguments out of commission for good. Can't argue with an early piece of physical evidence, right? Well, the scholar who actually worked on P52 gave a date range of 100 to 150. And he, this poor guy, was actually very reserved and cautious in the conclusions that he drew. And he even said, quote, any exact dating of book hands is, of course, out of the question, end quote. But, of course, the theologians only chose to listen to the part where he said 100 to 150 AD. And ever since then, they've kept pushing the dating of this thing more and more to the 100 side of that date range than the 150 side. It's like those stone angels from Doctor Who where every time you turn back and look at them, you found that they've moved closer to you. Like they only move closer when you're not looking. I mean, I don't know. I've never seen the fucking show, but some people swear by it. But it turns out that even the 100 to 150 date range itself is not a sure thing. In his paper, Brent Nongbri looks at the comparanda, that is the other samples of handwriting that were examined by the original researcher to help him date the hand of P52. And he finds that these comparanda have characteristics that also show up in other papyrus samples all the way into the third century. And you have to ask yourself, if you truly believe in the early dates for the Gospels, even if we didn't have the findings of Brent Nongbri here, do you really want to build this whole tower of the dating of the Gospels on the foundation of one paleographically dated piece of paper with three sentences written on it? I mean, the answer should be no. But we, in fact, see it everywhere, even in the occasional mass media articles that uh, discuss the dating of the Gospels, P52, 125 AD. P52, 125 AD. Might as well add it to the Apostles' Creed at this point. I mean, all other things being equal, I myself would be suspicious of P52 for the same reason that I'm suspicious of things like 7Q5, which is the Dead Sea Scroll that a handful of theologians have claimed is from the Gospel of Mark. Because just like in that case, It would just be so anomalous if P52 really dated from 125 AD, given all the other external and internal evidence for the dating of John, like the lack of mention of the Gospel of John until after the year 150. 
And thankfully, there are some researchers and experts that are also skeptical about P52. By no means is Nongbri the only one. He cites Andreas Schmidt in Germany, who gives it a date of 170. Walter Schmithals puts it toward the end of the second century, so we're in good company if we doubt this thing. And always remember that the theologians, for reasons I explained last time, are starving to date these Christian books early, and they snatch at any little scrap of evidence they can get their hands on. That initial paper about P-52 was absolutely rushed into publication at the time. I mean, you can talk to them all day about evidence for the books being late, and they'll ham and haw and come back with a, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? But the second they come across any evidence for early dating, they lose all their critical faculties. Because this early dating is a big, big deal. Modern Christianity requires the books to be dated as early as possible. So they wave P-52 around like the oriflamme. But enough about P-52. More like Action 52. It's so worthless. So how we'll approach this miniseries is we'll take each book, we'll briefly discuss what it is, the structure of it, and we'll look for the terminus dates. What's the earliest date it could have been written? What's the latest date it could have been written? Then we'll examine what fundamentalists say about the date of each book, and then we'll move from there to what the mainstream theologians say about the date of each book. And then we'll do the same thing for its authorship attribution. How was the name, the title, decided on? Then I'll give some of my own thoughts and observations on these topics, and we'll speak briefly about why the book was included in the New Testament collection and why it was placed in the specific part of the collection where it appears. Now, I'm not guaranteeing that my own dates for these books are indisputable, though I have no problem giving precise dates, but the premise of this show is that the conventional and traditional ways of looking at these subjects are built on a foundation of sand. Because when I first got into all this stuff, I didn't have a clear idea of what my precise timeline would be for the books, but I was extremely unsatisfied, as you should be, with how the theologians have approached this issue. So even though at that time I didn't have my own paradigm worked out yet, I could still see that the conventional paradigm had significant problems. It reminds me of that one quote from the movie, where he said, fuck man, I knew shit. The only thing I knew was that you were a fake. The last thing I'll say before we begin is that if I appear to have left anything out of these discussions, the likeliest explanation is that it was because of the time constraints of the show. It is not at all an exaggeration to say that I cut more material than I end up using. Now, we immediately have to deviate from the New Testament order, which will be rare in this series. Usually we'll be able to follow the canonical order of the books, but the dating of all three synoptic gospels is based on Mark, since Mark is a source for Matthew and Luke and must therefore necessarily precede Matthew and Luke. So we'll choose our own order here at the beginning. It's kind of like in that one video game for Super Nintendo, Bart's Nightmare from Acclaim where you can pick what order you complete the levels in. The objective of Mark was to define Jesus in the interest of a sect, and we discussed that in episode 4, to pull a god down to earth. But we're here today to talk about names and dates, everyone's favorite parts of studying history, so let's get our artillery into position and talk about the latest and earliest possible dates for Mark. The first actual datable reference to the Gospel of Mark is found in the writings of Irenaeus in the 190s. He clearly quotes Mark and clearly references Mark by name. Now, Irenaeus, like most members of the early church, much prefers the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, especially Matthew. But he does sometimes quote the Gospel of Mark by name, passages that are found only in Mark. 
I believe that Irenaeus was one of the first people to have a New Testament collection on his desk. It's very telling that he accepts only four Gospels when he famously says that just as there are four zones of the world and four Catholic spirits, so can there be only four Gospels. They're the four pillars of the church, according to him. Now, in the book of Revelation, in a passage that borrows heavily from Ezekiel, the author talks about how he saw four living beings in heaven, a lion, an ox, or a calf, a man, and an eagle. And Irenaeus says that these represent the four Gospels, and Mark is symbolized by the eagle. How is Mark symbolized by an eagle? Well, the real answer is that Irenaeus is basically stuck following the analogy or the vision from Revelation. So he's kind of forced to come up with something that could relate Mark to an eagle. But what he actually says is that Mark's gospel is similar to the discourses of a prophet, the kind of disjointed, oracular statements that are like the flying of a bird, you know, always flying off, flying about as birds do. I mean, I didn't come up with the analogy, he did. But all this to say, he knows the gospel of Mark. It's one of the canonical four. And throughout his book, he quotes from it, especially the first few lines of Mark. Irenaeus loves the beginning few lines of Mark. It makes me think that he never actually finished reading Mark. Like if someone had asked Irenaeus whether he'd read the gospel of Mark in its entirety, he'd say like, yeah, I skimmed it. You know, guy shouts, love thy neighbor, has a few laughs, forget how it ends. He talks about the beginning of Mark here with this stunning eagle analogy. He quotes the beginning of Mark again in another place when he wants to demonstrate that Jesus was the son of God, since Mark's gospel says that at the beginning. And he brings it up a third time when he wants to prove that Jesus was predicted by the Jewish prophets. I get strong, didn't do the homework vibes from Irenaeus. And by the way, he's not the only early Christian author who's like this either. He also quotes Mark to back up the argument that Jesus is the word of God, because he notes that in Mark, the demons call Jesus the holy one of God. Elsewhere, he talks about faith, and he brings in a Jesus quote from Mark, all things are possible to him who believes. He references the parable of the sower, and he uses the wording of the parable from Mark's gospel. And when he's giving the background of the four gospels, he says that Peter and Paul had been preaching at Rome at the end of their life, and after they died, Mark, who was the disciple and interpreter of Peter, handed down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. And lastly, in another place, Irenaeus calls Mark, again, the interpreter and follower of Peter. So those are the times that Irenaeus brings up or quotes Mark that are not especially problematic. What we can observe in general is that Irenaeus doesn't quote Mark anywhere nearly as much as he quotes Matthew and Luke. He only goes to Mark about 5% of the time. But from this, we can already see that Mark's gospel existed in some form during the 190s. But this can't really be our terminus date because we find also a few problematic things about Irenaeus' use of Mark. First of all, he quotes from the so-called longer ending of Mark. Now, the Gospel of Mark is like Blade Runner. It has like eight different endings, depending on which manuscript you're reading. Now, most would agree that the earliest and most original ending was at Mark 16.8. That's right after the story of two girls, one tomb. The women flee the empty tomb of Jesus, and they're so frightened that they tell no one. Predictably, early Christians were not satisfied with that ending. So, individual copyists and editors added extra material to the end of Mark, and this material differs. You have the older, shorter ending, which is just like an extra line that says, actually, the women did eventually tell everyone, and it all ended happily ever after. You know, Jesus was uh, resurrected on the way back to his home planet, 
And then you have the longer ending, the one Irenaeus quotes, where Jesus makes an appearance after his death. He meets Mary Magdalene. He meets the remaining disciples. He yells at them. And then because of that, you have in one copy of Mark at this point, the so-called freer Logion, where some copyists didn't like the fact that he yelled at them. So he lets them do a little clap back. And then the longer ending continues with the famous verse where Jesus promises the disciples that they'll be able to drink poison and pick up snakes, passage which has probably been responsible for the deaths of about five generations of Appalachians all told. Uh, there's another ending where Jesus ended up being the replicant, but the longer ending with the snake handling and the poison is what Irenaeus quotes in the 190s, okay? And that's a secondary addition to the text. So the original Gospel of Mark may have already existed for some time before Irenaeus wrote. That's not required, but it's a possibility that we have to consider. Another problematic thing, Irenaeus says that heretics like to use the Gospel of Mark. He says that twice. He says that Gnostics love the passage from Mark where Jesus says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with? He says they believe this has a mystic meaning that proves their own ideas about redemption. And he says that Mark is used exclusively by those heretics who believe that Jesus and Christ were two separate beings, and Christ was an invincible spirit, and therefore any suffering that's depicted in Mark's gospel was actually experienced by this separate Jesus entity. And so he could be lying about all this, but Irenaeus seems to be indicating here that other Christians, heretics, are familiar with the gospel of Mark. And make no mistake, when he's giving their opinions and their statements and their speculations, He's getting all that from books that they wrote. So in the 190s, commentaries on the Gospel of Mark may have existed. Okay, so another problematic thing about the use of Mark by Irenaeus. He wants to talk about the line that Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son has willed to reveal him. That passage in and of itself is very famous and very much debated in biblical scholarship because it appears to be an idea that we would expect to find in John's gospel. But this is a Q quote from Matthew and Luke's shared source, and it actually isn't in Mark, but Irenaeus says point blank that it is. So he could have been working off of like a mongrelized copy of Mark with extra quotations and passages in it. And this also suggests that we might have to push the date of the original composition of Mark to some time before him. Another thing, when Irenaeus describes the story in Mark where Jesus heals the daughter of the synagogue ruler, he calls her the daughter of the high priest. In the text of Mark that we have, she's not the daughter of the high priest, but the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. Now, it could be that Irenaeus just made a mistake here. It could also be that his copy of Mark said that the girl was the daughter of the high priest. And lastly, Irenaeus appears to be using what's called the Western text of Mark. And we don't have time to get into it today, but there are what's called text traditions. And these, in 50 words or less, are families of New Testament manuscripts whose wording is similar. And it's unknown as to which family is closest to the original text of the New Testament. And there's some reason to believe that the Western text, at least of the Gospels, is not the most ancient. And so we can see from all this that it's probably not appropriate to place Mark as late as 190 or even 180 or 170. It seems to have been around for at least a generation before Irenaeus got around to quoting it. And as it turns out, Irenaeus is technically not the first witness to a gospel that's written by Mark. He's the first to quote from it by name. But there's also the writings of the theologian Papias. 
No one can agree on when Papias wrote. I've seen 100, 110, 120, 130, 140, and 150. I put him in the late 160s because, as I'll talk about in this miniseries, I believe that his writings were attached as an appendix to the first New Testament. But Papias, whose books we no longer possess, apparently said that Mark was Peter's interpreter, and he followed Peter around, and he wrote down the contents of Peter's preaching, though not in any kind of regular order. Later, Christians would go on to embellish this myth, but this is what we know. At the end of the second century, Irenaeus knows about the Gospel of Mark, and he has access to a book by Papias, which also knows of a gospel written by Mark, and Papias says that Mark was Peter's gopher. Irenaeus also indicates that some heretics are aware of the Gospel of Mark, and they may have written commentaries on it. Prior to this, the only other record that we have of the Gospel of Mark is Justin Martyr, writing around the year 160 in the dialogue with Trifo. He relates a story that's only found in Mark, but he says that he's getting it from something called the Memoirs of Peter. So he need not have had canonical Mark on his desk or even been aware of it. But from all this, we can posit that the latest date that Mark could have been written in some form is, let's say, 150 AD. That accounts for Justin knowing this unique story. That accounts, of course, for Matthew and Luke following Mark. That accounts for the storm of nonsense that Papias conjures up. That accounts for Irenaeus knowing and quoting Mark. And that accounts for these alleged commentaries by the heretics. So the latest date for some form of Mark is, let's say, 150 AD. Now, what about the earliest possible date? Well, for that, we have to look for the last datable historical event that's mentioned in Mark. Now, many believe that Mark is aware of the first Roman-Jewish war, which took place in the late 60s, early 70s AD. But it's not 100% clear that he knows about it, as we'll talk about. So for the latest datable historical event, we will go with Pontius Pilate and his prefecture over Judea. That began in about 26 AD. So the earliest possible date for the Gospel of Mark is, in fact, 26 AD. We can't go with the date of Jesus' death, which I have seen variously placed in 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, and 36, because, of course, the dating of Jesus' death is another one of these mare's nests, just like the dating of John the Baptist's death. So we have to stick with the beginning of Pilate's term as prefect of Judea. So we've laid down our artillery fire at both ends of the enemy's position. And we can look for the composition of Mark anytime between 26 AD and 150 AD. And when we come back, we'll see how the fundamentalist and the mainstream theologians have tried to pinpoint and triangulate the date of Mark's gospel. Back after this. Before we go into the scholarly arguments about the date of Mark, I just wanted to present a list of dates that I've compiled that various theologians have given for Mark over the years. Now, some of these dates may be supported by only one single scholar. Some may have support from multiple or even many scholars, but I'm going to list these dates just to give you a sense of the range. Ready? 35 to 45, 40 to 41, 40 to 50, 42 to 43. 43, 44, 45 to 50, 48, 50 to 75, that was Larry Hurtado, 
50 to 100, 63, 64, 64 to 68, 64 to 72, 66, 66 to 69, 67 to 69, 70, 70 to 73, 70 to 80, 70 to 90, 70 to 100, 75 to 80, 80 to 85, 100 to 110, 100 to 125, 120, 130 to 170 by the great F.C. Bauer, 135 to 145, and 160 to 180. So we learn from this that the Gospel of Mark, the most influential book in human history, and the primary source for the absolutely, unquestionably historical Jesus, could have been written in literally any year between 35 and 180. Now, I've done a lot of shitposting in my time with material like this because, like I said, I have lists like this for every ancient Christian book. And the immediate response that I usually get from believing Christians, often from more than one of them under the same post, it's like, read the replies, yo. But the immediate response is usually, yeah, scholars have given a range of dates, but the consensus is what's important. Because they say that it's like a bell curve. You know, the majority of New Testament scholars will be seen to cluster their dates around 70 AD in the case of Mark. But never forget this. The mere fact that someone can even propose and defend 135 AD or 35 AD for that matter speaks volumes about how little the consensus dating is based on. Imagine if you came out with a thesis that Charlotte's Web was first written in 1724. Maybe you might even do a podcast about it, call it Woven in the 18th Century. You're liable to get Baker acted if you do that. Because we know when Charlotte's Web was published, down to the exact day, and we know when the first manuscript was presented, and we have the author's testimony as to when he began writing it. And it also heavily depends on a book called American Spiders, which came out only shortly beforehand. Now here you might say, well, Charlotte's Web isn't a good analogy. Charlotte's Web is a modern book. You know, the best analogy would be to like the Iliad or something. Well, always remember that New Testament scholarship needs these ancient Christian books to be reliable and early. And so when they propose their dates of composition, they don't do it humbly and give ballpark figures with 50 to 100 year intervals as is done for the Iliad. They try to pin it down close to within the lifetime of the first generation after Jesus. And they are extremely certain and self-righteous about it, as we'll see. They're just as sure of the dates of these things as they are of the date of Charlotte's Web. Or at least, they're sure that the dates of the Christian books are not too terribly late. they, They, at this point in history, they just dismiss a late date immediately. They scoff at it. So with that in mind, let's start by checking in with the fundamentalists. What's the date that they assign to the Gospel of Mark? Generally, It's anywhere from 40 AD, which is frightful, to about 60 AD at the latest. Now, how do they come up with that? Well, first, they accept the words of the early church fathers like Papias at face value. They don't question them at all. Mark was Peter's interpreter, and he's identical to Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, who's mentioned in Paul's letters of Colossians and Philemon, and also John Mark, who's mentioned in Acts of the Apostles, and also the Mark who's mentioned in the first letter of Peter. Peter passes along a greeting from Mark, whom he describes as his son. You know, I used to be a Catholic, or I I guess I still am a Catholic, technically, and one of the things I liked about Catholicism was that the church considers the writings of the early church fathers to be more or less authoritative. They're careful not to outright say that the writings of someone like Jerome, for example, are on par with the New Testament, but they effectively treat them as such. 
And that's always been one of the big sticking points between Catholics and Protestants, which is that to Protestants, the early church fathers were just some guys. You know, they believe that you should by no means be taking anything they wrote and basing your belief system on it. Now, most of the online apologists are Protestants. And it's funny because when they find themselves arguing about the historicity and the antiquity of the New Testament, all apologists, they, regardless of their confessional background, will accept the writings of the church fathers on those subjects as absolutely authoritative. They're all Catholics now, basically, and they accept the ancient testimony about Mark's gospel and when it was written and who wrote it, which they're all getting from those early church fathers. They accept it just as readily as if it were written in the New Testament itself. It's the surest thing you know that Mark was a guy who followed Peter around, wrote down his preaching, and published it shortly after Peter's death. And they do this because we utterly lack any other historical record as to the provenance of Mark's gospel. And speaking of fundamentalism, this belief is actually stated in the tract called The Fundamentals, which is the source of fundamentalism and how fundamentalism actually got its name. It's from the early 20th century. One of the contributors to that says, it's well known that Mark is Peter's gospel. Now, it should be noted that to ancient Christians, and this is a smaller point, but to ancient Christians, the various Marks that were mentioned in Paul's letters, Acts, first letter of Peter, these did not all refer to the same guy, in their opinion. So Hippolytus, for example, writing in the early 200s, makes it out to where all three of these Marks in the New Testament refer to different people. For him, there's Mark the Evangelist. That's the guy who wrote the gospel and became Bishop of Alexandria. There's Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the one mentioned in Paul's letters, who became Bishop of Apollonia. And lastly, there's John Mark from Acts, the only French character in the New Testament. And according to Hippolytus, he became Bishop of a podunk village. The fundamentalists generally don't accept this distinction. Despite what Hippolytus said, all the mentions of Mark in the New Testament refer to the same guy, according to them. So they don't scruple to correct the early Christians when they don't like their testimony but they blindly accept them as authoritative when they do like their testimony. The fundamentalists and the apologists in general wear different hats depending on the situation. It's like the Final Fantasy V job system. So this is a big part of the fundamentalist argument, the early testimony of the church fathers. And that's at the core of some of what I would consider fundamentalist writings on this topic. Like there was a book by John Wenham called Redating Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a fresh assault on the synoptic problem. Okay, that's aggressive, sir. I'm gonna need you to check your levels, but he put Mark in the 40s AD. So the the testimony of the church fathers is very significant to them, and he based his argument on that as well. Now, there's another reason that fundamentalists put the gospel of Mark this early, and to explain it, we actually have to talk about the gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles. Luke and Acts are considered to have been written by the same author. That's what Acts of the Apostles says at the beginning. And of course, Luke was written after Mark because Luke uses Mark as a source. And the fundamentalists are mesmerized at the fact that Acts doesn't mention certain things like Paul's death, Peter's death, the death of James. And they can't imagine why the author wouldn't have included these events if he knew about them. So this means to them that Acts and Luke were written before these events. And in turn, Mark must have been written before them as well. So their argument here boils down to book say the thing, or actually in this case, book no say the thing. Of course, we can speculate on the reasons why the author didn't talk about these events, such as like, you know, maybe he didn't want to, for example, but 
by no means should we be making dating decisions based on it. Now, it's funny, again, because in deciding on an early date for Mark with this argument, the fundamentalists are relying on an argument from silence, which is the same thing that they shout at people like me when we do it. In fact, speaking of Catholics, I recently listened to a Catholic apologetics podcast, which I might cover on a bonus show someday, and the host was arguing against Christ mythicism. And this cat actually said that if you try to argue that Jesus didn't exist by pointing out that no ancient Greco-Roman contemporary mentions him, that is inadmissible as an argument from silence. But then he says, I'm not kidding, not to say arguments from silence are always invalid. For example, Acts of the Apostles doesn't mention the deaths of Peter and Paul and James, and so therefore I think that's a strong argument to put Acts and the Gospels before those events. That's an instance where argument from silence is valid. So you're not going to find consistency with these guys. Again, it's the Final Fantasy V job system. You can dress up as a black mage or a geomancer or other stuff. I don't know, I haven't played in a while, but you can change your outfit depending on what battle you're fighting at the moment. But the possible reasons as to why the Acts author didn't mention Peter's death are legion. My own thinking is that not only was he not trying to do a comprehensive history, but he was also trying to avoid putting historical material out there that could potentially be gainsaid by rival Christian sects. But in all this discussion of the fundamentalist dating of Mark, notice how flimsy this superstructure is. It basically amounts to Papias book say the thing, Acts of the Apostles book no say the thing. And the fundamentalists also generally believe that the Dead Sea Scroll 7Q5 is evidence of an early date for Mark. I talked about it in the Mark episode. I, like Basically, if you pull a random piece of paper out of your trash can, that piece of paper has more of a chance of being a fragment of Mark than 7Q5 does. Now, as we'll see, there are other internal arguments that can be used to date Mark early, and we'll cover them shortly because they are actually deployed by mainstream theologians. The distinction between fundamentalists who date the books early and mainstream theologians who date them early is that fundamentalists tend to rely mostly on testimony. Book say the thing is usually more than enough for them. So if you're thinking about passages from Mark where Jesus says things like, some standing here won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming with power, we'll get to those presently. But let's now move closer to the realm of sanity and discuss the mainstream theologian's date for the Gospel of Mark. There are two schools of thought, generally, on Mark. The first is that it was written in or around the year 70, slightly before, slightly after. That's what we can call the more moderate school. These are your Bart Ehrmans of the world. But the second school tries to put it even earlier, like around 40 AD. Now you might be thinking, you said that the fundamentalists tried to put it around 40 AD. Now you're saying that some mainstream theologians try to put it there too. And you're right, and it's a bit complicated, but... When fundamentalists put the text early, you see, according to the theologians, they're doing it uncritically and for reasons of faith. But when mainstream theologians put the text early, it's bold and innovative and daring. It's considered innovative in New Testament studies to come up with reasons to put the books earlier than the consensus. You think of guys like Maurice Casey, pretty much exactly the opposite of what's needed in our time. But the moderate view on the date of Mark is that it was written sometime around 70 A.D., and it's generally acknowledged that the author was using earlier sources, like oral tradition. The moderate theologians say that Mark can't be too early because the equally undateable books of Matthew and Luke depend on it, and they were allegedly written in the 80s and 90s. We're going to see this pattern a lot in this series, dating an undateable book using other undateable books. 
Why is Mark placed around the year 70? It's because he appears to kind of be aware that the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. Like, no one in Mark ever says outright that the temple was destroyed. Remember that the story is set in the 30s AD, so the temple was still standing at the time of the story. But the theologians have detected allusions that suggest that the author was writing at a time where he knew that the temple had been destroyed or that its imminent destruction was obvious. And so what's the evidence that the author knew that the temple had been destroyed? Well, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus curses a fig tree, as one does. He then immediately goes to the temple, drives out the money changers, and it's this action that inspires the Jewish authorities to plot his death. Immediately after this, he leaves and heads back in the morning. The fig tree is now withered from the roots. When Peter comments on this, Jesus says the thing about whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and believes it, it will be granted. In fact, anything for which you pray and ask, if you believe you've received it, it'll be granted to you. After saying this, this statement that has caused untold damage to modern American culture, they head back to Jerusalem. And it's difficult not to see the fig tree as an analogy for the temple. And not only that, but the whole temple system, with the atonement and the sacrifices and the propitiation, it is not by accident that Mark plops this mountain mover comment here. The idea that you can move mountains by praying just as easily as if you're playing populous on the old Super Nintendo just as easily as if you're raising the terrain in SimCity 2000. Remember that? Reticulating splines. The author is comforting the reader, saying, don't worry that the temple's no longer there. We always knew that we could successfully petition God if we prayed with a faithful and honest heart. And that's one of the central ideologies of the early sectarian Christianity. Also, Jesus, not long after this, tells the parable of the wicked tenants. A man leased his vineyard out to vine growers and he sent his slave to collect the proceeds. They beat him and send him on his way. He sends more slaves, some of whom are beaten like the first one, some of whom are killed. So finally he sends his own son. They kill him because according to them, they would secure the inheritance that way. I guess this parable takes place in a universe in which there are no courts. This is like a Khmer Rouge understanding of property law. But Jesus says about this, what will the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and put the vine growers to death and give the vineyard to others. The theologian Richard Pervo pointed out that the verb used by Jesus when he says that he'll give the vineyard to others, it's a form of the same verb that Josephus used when he said that the emperor Vespasian directed his officials to sell the land of the Judeans after the Roman victory in the rebellion. So this suggests that Mark knows the outcome of the first Roman Jewish war. And of course, later on, Jesus is asked by his followers when the temple will be destroyed, and he responds by issuing the Apocalypse speech, Mark 13, the Apocalypse Junior, as I call it. He says it'll come after a period of wars, a period of false prophets, a period of persecution. So Mark's Jesus knows that the temple was destroyed. Therefore, Mark knows that the temple was destroyed. Now, the money question here is if Mark knows that the temple had been destroyed in the year 70, why do the theologians insist on placing the date of Mark's gospel in or shortly before or shortly after the year 70? Why don't they place it in the second century? The, the temple was just as destroyed in the year 101, for example, as it was in the year 71. The reason is that in that Apocalypse Junior speech, Mark's Jesus seems to be saying that the temple will be destroyed after what sounds like World War III. Or I guess it would still be World War Zero at this point. 
He basically says that it'll happen at the end of the world. And to the best of our knowledge, the world did not end in 70 AD or even shortly after 70. So Mark, to many of the mainstream theologians, seems to have been writing at a time when the war was still raging. Jerusalem was besieged and the end of the world seemed to be at hand. So most of the mainstream theologians will put the Gospel of Mark between 65 and 75 with the biggest cluster in and around the year 70. And Mark's references to persecution coincide with the, in their mind, historical persecution of Christians by Nero. Lastly, there's another argument for a date shortly after 70. In an article called The Date of Mark's Gospel by the Christian scholar Christopher Zeichmann, he focuses on the famous passage from Mark 12, where Jesus is asked whether it's permissible to pay a capitation tax, and he famously says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Zeichmann says that this passage indicates that the Gospel of Mark couldn't have been written before August 29th, 71 AD, because this refers to the Fiscus Judaicus, or Jewish tax, that was imposed on the Jews by the Romans after that date. And he also points out that even in the mid-first century, the term Caesar was not yet commonly used to refer to the emperors generally. There was still some adjustment to the fact that Caesar was now an imperial title. You remember that Caesar is originally like a family name that came to be adopted as a royal title over time. And this process wasn't yet complete by the year 70, yet here we have Mark's Jesus just throwing it out there as if it would be understood by the reader as the El Generico term for any old Roman emperor who happened to be in power. Now, Zeichmann also points out that the coin that they're disputing over is a denarius, and denarii were rare in this region until after the Jewish war. He says that only one pre-Jewish war denarius has been found in Galilee, and he also says that the type of tax that Jesus appears to be describing wasn't levied in Judea until after the war. He basically says in all this that the question that the author is really dealing with here is, does paying the post-70 AD Fiscus Judaicus render someone unfaithful to the Lord? So this has been an insightful addition to the debate by Christopher Zeichmann, but taking all these together, we now have a picture of how the more moderate theologians have dated Mark's gospel. Now, as I mentioned, there are two schools of thought within the mainstream on the date of Mark. The more moderate among them put it around 70, like we said, but some of the more enterprising among them put it around 40 AD. And again, in their mind, it's not okay when the fundamentalists do it, but when they do it, it's okay because they're doing serious scholarship. Well, there's some truth to that because we saw that the fundamentalist argument for putting Mark early is based on two key elements book say the thing, and book no say the thing. The mainstreamers who put Mark early are much more sophisticated than this. They point to things like Mark's Jesus being Torah observant. Jesus tells the healed leper to present himself to the priest as Moses commanded. A man asks Jesus what he has to do to receive eternal life, and the, the answer that Jesus gives is famous for his comment about having to sell everything he owns and give to the poor and follow me. But the first part of the answer was to keep the commandments. So there's at least some argument that could be made that Jesus in Mark observed the Torah. And these theologians believe that this would put Mark before the time when Paul's letters had an impact on the church. In their mind, Paul and his letters were what began shifting Christianity away from Torah observance. By the way, on this, the mainstream theologians don't like the idea that there was such a thing as a Jewish Christianity like a Peter or a James Christianity versus a Paul Christianity that was more Gentile in outlook. And they don't like that because of historical reasons that we don't have time to get into today, but 
A lot of times in their arguments like this one about Mark having to be early because in it, Jesus is Torah observant and Christianity as a whole was more Torah observant until the time of Paul. To me, that's effectively the same thing as believing in a Peter Christianity and a Paul Christianity that were at odds. It's just that they're smart enough not to say that anymore, but all their actual arguments heavily imply it still. But also, to date Mark early, they point to things like the Apocalypse Junior. They say that in the Apocalypse Junior, when Jesus predicts that the abomination of desolation will be standing where it shouldn't, he's not talking about Roman standards on the Temple Mount in the year 70, which is the moderate theologian's view. They say that he's actually referring to an effigy of the Emperor Caligula that Caligula ordered to be set up in the Jewish Temple around the year 40 A.D., This is something that was planned in real life at the time, but never actually ended up taking place. But the theologians who date Mark early say that if Jesus is referring here to this planned image of Caligula, it means that Mark's gospel had to have been written late in the 30s or around the year 40. Another thing they point to is Aramaisms in the gospel of Mark. On certain occasions, Mark will report the words of Jesus and include an Aramaic word or phrase, and then he'll give the translation. Jesus says to the high priest's daughter, Talitha kum, which we're told by Mark means, little girl, get up. He says, Ephmatha, to the deaf man while healing him, which Mark tells us means, be opened. Jesus begins his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane by calling upon Abba, or Father. And lastly, on the cross, before he dies, Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which Mark tells us means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a quote from a System of a Down song. Correction, it's a quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. And so these Aramaisms are seen as evidence of an early date, a very early date, going back to the original language and milieu of Jesus. And also to date Mark early, they point to two statements made by Jesus, both to the effect that the author seems to be indicating that the end of the world would come within the lifetime of Jesus's immediate followers. Jesus says, there are some of you standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming with power. And at the end of Apocalypse Junior, Jesus says, this generation won't pass away until all these things take place. And lastly, they point to the passion narrative. Jesus is on the way to get crucified, and he activates Task Rabbit to see if there's anyone in the area that can help him carry the cross. Simon of Cyrene shows up, coming in from the country. He's compelled to carry the cross, and in Mark's gospel, he is introduced as Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus make no appearance in the gospel. They weren't mentioned before or since, so theologians who call for an early date for Mark insist that Mark's audience would therefore have had to know who Alexander and Rufus were. And so Mark had to have been writing in the time of the contemporaries of Alexander and Rufus who would have been in a position to know who they were. This has been a basic summary of how Mark is dated. It's not been exhaustive, but I don't think I've excluded anything major. And so it should be striking what a flimsy foundation that these dates are built on, but these theologians argue them as if they were never more sure of anything. On some occasions, they're smart enough to say that we ultimately can't be too certain, but That's just something they say. Like when you say, we can't be certain about a book's date, then the next thing I expect you to do is to just give me a very broad range. And then maybe even say that even that range is tentative. But no, they just know to say we can't be certain because that's a thing that smart people are supposed to say. 
but then they go right on arguing for April 5th of 68 AD or whatever. But when we come back, we'll address all these arguments. Back after this. We've just given a summary of the theologians' arguments for placing the date of Mark, but we haven't addressed them yet, so we'll proceed with that now. Now, my philosophy on the dating of Mark, and I think all should agree, would be to start at the upper terminus date, that is, when the book is first known and quoted, and work our way back. Theologians mostly do the opposite. They start at the death of Jesus and work their way forward, look for indications of when these books were written, but let's start at the upper limit. We said earlier that there seems to have been some version of something resembling Mark in the 150s AD. Now, the Gospel of Mark, first of all, assumes that Jews are an outgroup, but, crucially, the author still considers himself in some way to be Jewish. But it's clear from the context that normative Judaism has passed him by. And the author of Mark is a Jewish heretic, essentially, but he doesn't seem to accept that fact. In his mind, what we would call the normative Jews are the heretics. And who are the normative Jews, according to Mark? Well, they're best represented by Jesus' main enemies in the gospel, whom he's constantly polemicizing against and tangling with, the Pharisees and the scribes. These are depicted as claiming some kind of authoritative power to interpret the law and seem also to have some enforcement mechanisms to that end. In other words, Mark is operating in the time of the early Jewish rabbis the post-70 AD rabbis who were left to pick up the pieces of Judaism after the temple cult was eliminated and who were regarded as having come directly out of the Pharisaic movement. Mark seems to assume that Christians are being persecuted. We spoke in the Pliny series about there being no record of persecution of Christians, at least by the state, until possibly the 130s or later. This persecution in Mark, which he never says is coming from the state, may refer to sectarian ostracism coming at the hands of mainstream Jews such as could have been a live issue during the Ketos War of the early 2nd century, could also have been coming from rival Christian sectarians. And when we factor in all the anachronisms, the proliferation of synagogues in Galilee, you know, Jesus and his disciples holding the post-70 AD Seder, the Pharisees stalking around the Middle East like the lensmen, the author's recognition that Christianity has already firmly taken root among both Gentiles and Jews on an institutional level, the possible use of Josephus, the knowledge of the late legend about the death of James and John, and when we remember that we're dealing with an author who is self-consciously trying to set his story in the past, and using this Darren Aronofsky method of flattening the dimension of time, leaving out any time cues that could point to contemporary events, then we find ourselves well within the second century, and I gave the likely date of around 120 for the Gospel of Mark. The full range would be 115 to 140. But let's address the arguments that theologians used for a much earlier date. Starting with the fundamentalist arguments for an early date, they pointed to the testimony of Papias. Papias said that Mark was Peter's interpreter. It, it seems clear that Papias was engaging in guesswork based on flipping through the New Testament and looking for likely candidates for whom Mark was. 
You know, David Trobish, whom we talked about last time, said that it was the first editor of the New Testament who came up with the title Gospel According to Mark. And he said that early readers of the New Testament would have found references to Mark in 1 Peter and other places that would help them make the connection in their mind as to who the author of Mark was. As such, Papias was either the first fool to be duped by this, and his backstory about Mark being Peter's interpreter is just essentially fan fiction, or Papias himself had a hand in crafting the first New Testament and putting all these books together and assigning their titles. And it was him and his cohorts who came up with the title for Mark, again, getting it from the first letter of Peter. I mean, of course, the main problem with Papias and what he says about Mark is that he seems to represent Mark as being almost a disjointed transcript of someone's preaching, in this case, Peter's, and it really isn't. It's a carefully crafted religious narrative that's full of symbolism and has a deliberate structure. Someone like Papias, who appears to be completely ignorant of that, cannot be a reliable source for the provenance of Mark. Now, just briefly, some skeptics may be listening and wondering why I always assume that Papias existed and wrote in the 160s or the 170s when we don't have his physical books anymore. And the first time his views about the Gospels are quoted is actually by Eusebius in the 300s. Well, that's a very good question, and I'm willing to answer it. You see, what Papias says about the Gospels is not quoted until the 300s, yes. But when you look at the late 2nd century Christian writers and what they say about the Gospels and their authors and where they came from, it's similar enough to what we hear was in the Papias book that I think it's clear that they were all getting it from a common source. We might as well call that source the Papias book. I mean, what else would they have gotten it from? Another big fundamentalist argument for an early date was that Luke Acts doesn't know about Paul's death or Peter's death or the death of James, the leader of the church. So it had to have been written before that. And therefore, Mark's gospel had to have been written even before that. Book no say the thing. I mean, the, the Acts author mentions the death of the apostle called James, the brother of John. And that's what fundamentalists like to point to. They say, why would the Acts author mention the death of this loser and not more important people like Peter, Paul, or James, the leader of the church. And it's like the Acts author only mentions the death of the apostle James, the brother of John, because there are two Jameses in the story. And there were, at the time of writing, at least two important Jameses in the Christian tradition. And if you notice, in Acts of the Apostles, James, the brother of John, is killed at Acts 12.2. And it's a very perfunctory, almost a throwaway line like, oh, and Herod killed James, BTW. And then literally a handful of lines later in Acts 12, 17, James, the church leader, is introduced for the first time and ends up being a major character in the next few chapters. What the author's trying to do is to rewrite history and say, hey, you know how our famous early leaders were Peter, James, and John? Well, the James in that phrase was not actually John's brother. He was actually Jesus's brother, and he was the same guy that the high priest put to death in the Josephus book. But all this to say, the author of Acts was not writing a chronicle. This is tendency writing of the highest order. The reason he didn't mention the deaths of Peter and Paul was because it wasn't on theme. And he does know about the death of Paul, as I said in episode seven, because he foreshadows it. And he also indicates that Paul preached in Rome under house arrest for another two years, and then he ends the book. And like the radical critic Robert M. Price said, what are we supposed to believe happened after those two years that Paul was set free? So this book no say the thing argument for the birds. But let's engage now with the mainstream theologians and their arguments for putting Mark around 70 AD. 
First of all, Mark's knowledge of the first Roman Jewish war. I, of course, agree that he knows about it. But as for what they say about how Mark knows about the war or even the lead up to the war, but he doesn't know its outcome because he thinks that the end of the world will happen during it. I want to bring in what I said in the Mark episode, and I don't think I made my point there as clearly as I could have. What I was trying to say was that Mark chapter 13, the Apocalypse Junior, where Jesus predicts the end of the world, is a pre-existing generic Jewish apocalypse that Mark inserted into the gospel and placed in the mouth of Jesus because he wanted to have a prediction of the end times. And he clearly edited and added to it here and there, but where he chose to stick this generic apocalypse was after Jesus had commented that the temple would be destroyed and then the disciples asked him about when will these things happen and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled, i.e. they are asking him when the world will end. But this juxtaposition with the Apocalypse Junior coming right after that question that referenced the temple now makes it look like the Apocalypse Junior is meant to refer to the events of the First Roman Jewish War. But we ought rather to read the author's intent as being something more like this. You know, they come out of the temple, the disciples say, wow, what nice buildings. And then Jesus says, sure, they are nice buildings. Would really be a shame if something happened to them. And if you're willing to part with five talents a week, we could, no, no, no. They say such nice buildings. Jesus says they'll be destroyed someday. And then they, assuming that he's talking about the end of the world, ask him about the end of the world, when it will be, and he tells them. When he says that these buildings will be torn down and no stone will be left on top of another, like, first of all, there is still one stone left on top of another, like to this day, 2021, in the Western Wall, and that intact wall could still have been seen in Mark's time. But when Jesus says this, he is not necessarily referring to the destruction of 70 AD, because had they been coming out of a Whataburger and Peter said, I like the architecture of this Whataburger, you know, the author would have then made Jesus say, you know, you, one day this won't be standing anymore. And we as the audience would have understood that he would be referring to the end times. So all this to say, the Apocalypse Junior need not refer to the events of 70 AD. Now, let's address the next argument. The two quotes of Jesus that seem to indicate that the gospel was written in the lifetime of his immediate followers. First, we have, there are certain here of those standing who might never taste death until they might see the kingdom of God having come with power. That one. And at the end of the Apocalypse Junior, it says, Truly I say that this generation might never pass until all these things might come to be. Let's take the first one. Some standing here will never taste death. It has long been recognized by the forum critics that this phrase likely comes from the early charismatic Christian prophets. That's where it had its origin. It's an inspiring, uplifting phrase, or it could even be a kind of a warning. It's kind of like that album title, Millions Now Living Will Never Die, from the band Turtle. I mean, that's where the quote comes from, but Tortoise. Tortoise is the name of that band. What did I say, Turtle? Fuck's sake. Anyway, Mark took this quote from the charismatic prophet tradition and placed it before the transfiguration. That's where Jesus appears on a mountaintop with Moses and Elijah, and his clothes are shining so bright as not even any launderer on earth could make them. So what Mark did is recontextualize a quote from the prophetic tradition. And my view, following the scholar Theodore Whedon, is that he was trying to undermine the charismatic prophets. So that whatever they meant by, some of you won't die until you see the kingdom, it now, regardless of what it originally referred to, 
it now always and forever refers to the transfiguration. And so Jesus wasn't lying when he said, some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming with power. It happened about 15 minutes after he said that. Now, the other quote, this generation won't pass away until these things take place. This is stock footage from a generic apocalypse, B-roll. And we see these types of promises regularly in apocalyptic literature. Now, sometimes it's pointed out that Jesus here says, this generation won't pass away until these things take place. And that's a prediction that's being put into the mouth of Jesus, whether, as I say, it comes from a secondary document originally or not. So at the end of all things, Mark is literally having Jesus predict the end of the world in his followers' lifetimes. But then they say, when the end of the world didn't happen, a secondary editor added to the speech a few lines later and made Jesus say, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. But here's what we should always be keeping in mind. If the original author of Mark is aware that Jesus once said, the world will end in this generation, is writing a book about Jesus the most effective way he could be spending his time? I mean, we know that books like these were written in the ancient world for posterity. And Mark has crafted this extraordinarily complex gospel with sandwich set pieces and a carefully elusive pastiche of elements from first and second Kings clearly meant for it to be revered as scripture since he's aping the style of the Septuagint. Wouldn't this be a wasted effort if Jesus had warned back in 30 AD that the world would end in his listeners' lifetimes? I mean, the clock's ticking. You know, it's not like the guy who wrote Fourth Ezra or the messianic apocalypse from the Dead Sea Scrolls where, you know, you write down your fantasy about the end of the world for the benefit of you and your comrades and, you know, it's all forward-looking. No, to Mark, the founder of his religion has already said that the end could come at literally any minute. So it doesn't make sense. So it seems most likely that Mark picked up this secondary text, this mini apocalypse, a thoroughly Jewish document, if there ever was one, and he just included it wholesale, including the line that the end would come in this generation. And maybe he chose to understand that in some other sense than its literal one. I just think that from what we see elsewhere in the gospels and acts, and this scissors and paste method that they're found to use so often, this line of Jesus is best explained as being an artifact from Mark's Jewish source. But speaking of predictions, let's talk about another big argument for putting Mark early in the years leading up to 70. The fact that the temple's destruction is not more obviously mentioned. And this is where you get a weird crossfire between theologians. Some are adamant that Mark knows all about the events of 70. Some are adamant that he doesn't. But the mere fact that there is such a controversy should reveal how hopeless are the dating methods for this gospel. But when it comes to the destruction of the temple, Christianity in general as a religion presupposes the destruction of the temple. Christianity is in fact, in part, a response to the destruction of the temple and the elimination of the sacrificial cult. You know, the fact that unlike in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Jerusalem temple is not often overtly discussed in early Christian writings. You know, the main exceptions would be when they refer to the first temple when they're referencing the Old Testament. The fact that it's not more regularly discussed is a striking indicator that the temple was no longer standing when the first Christians were knocking about. I mean, there are some documents like Hebrews that make some half-assed attempt at, you know, establishing a continuity between Christianity and the temple. There are some Christian texts like 1 Corinthians or 1 Clement 
that contain little throwaway lines in them that suggest that the temple was still standing. But I mean, that continued to be a tradition in Jewish literature well after 70 AD, as well as I, as I talked about in episode three. Christianity appears to have originated in a world where there were two major alternatives, early rabbinic Judaism on the one side and everything else on the other. Kind of like the third estate in late modern France, you had the clergy, the nobility, and everyone else. And that everything else, that mass of competitors to early rabbinic Judaism, were things like Gnostic sects like the Nassines, apocalyptic sects like you know whoever wrote the Ascension of Isaiah. There were things like the Day Baptists, and there were Jewish sects that were beginning to borrow from mystery religions. And other than like the furtive pseudo arguments that we can read in the letter to the Hebrews, the early Christians do not seem to have felt the need to explain why exactly it was that their scheme of redemption had superseded the temple cult, which was absolutely central to first century Judaism, even in the diaspora. You know, I interviewed a Jewish scholar, a rabbi, that the local Chabad center put me in touch with, not for him to appear on the show. I mean, I don't, I don't do interviews on the show, just for research. And the question I put to him about the centrality of the temple to first century Judaism, it was almost confusing to him at first when I asked it. He was just, just like, yeah, of course. I mean, everything ultimately went back to the temple in the first century. And the Talmudic writings, a century and more after its destruction, are still saying that the sacrificial cult is one of the elements upon which the world is built. And this at a time when it was no longer active. But early Christian writers seldom engage with these things. It seems to bore them like prayer, fasting, and almsgiving to them are equivalent to animal sacrifice. They seem to have much greater concerns than the physical temple having been destroyed, which they seem to view as something that largely happened in the past that mainly harmed an entity that they call the Jews. So the fact that Mark doesn't mention this event more explicitly is in keeping with early Christian practice, but it's easier to understand that if we put the origins of Christianity in their correct place. Also, don't forget, the Hamanegger who wrote this gospel was deliberately setting his story in the past. So there's that. And it's difficult to see what kind of occasion he would have had to sneak in a reference to the temple being destroyed, you know, just for the sake of doing like a mocking Nelson Muntz laugh directed at the Jews. Now, another argument that came up was Aramaisms, the use of Aramaic terms in Mark's gospel suggesting an early date. Some theologians have been obsessed with searching for an early Aramaic source that lies behind the Gospels. There have actually been individuals in history, and even today, who learn Aramaic, specialize in it, like Aramaic is like the only thing they do because they're certain that there's an underlying Aramaic source to be found for the Gospels. And there's really no indication of this. The fruits of all their labors are just a handful of maybes. And one of the few indications of an Aramaic milieu is, in fact, this little handful of exotic words that shows up in Mark's gospel. But it should be pretty clear that Mark has added these to give a sense of coloring to his narrative, because not only are these Aramaic phrases deployed very sparingly, but in each case, he immediately translates the word, almost like he's afraid to lose his audience. And my own suspicion would be that these specific Aramaic phrases were made famous by wandering Christian prophets and healers. And Mark wanted to put them in the mouth of Jesus as well. Like these wandering Christian magicians may have attempted to raise children out of comas. And they might have said, Talitha kum. They might have said, Ephatha, when healing a deaf person. They may have prayed to God using the term Abba, 
that might have been a point of pride for them, kind of like how the cynics saw themselves as having a special role as messengers of Zeus. Now, the Christian prophets could have presented themselves as being on familiar terms with God. Now, as for Jesus' words on the cross, these could have been famous as being acted out by these prophets when they were claiming to get communications from the risen Jesus. They may have wowed their audiences with depictions of Jesus at his moment of death. And we know that there were such depictions of Jesus' death that were popular in early Christianity. That's indicated in Paul's letter to the Galatians. They may have delivered his last words in Aramaic because that would impress the audience all the more. And these things made their way into Mark. The author of Mark was just as much of a charlatan as these early Christian prophets were. Mark's use of Aramaic, it kind of reminds me of the first scene of Inglorious Bastards, where the characters are having a conversation in French, you know, and they're just shooting the shit. And remember, the movie is primarily made for English-speaking audiences. Well, at the exact moment in the conversation where they have to introduce important plot points, they mutually agree to switch to English for the rest of the conversation. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible that an SS officer and a French farmer could have been conversing in English in like the 1940s countryside, but it's clear that the French dialogue was there for artistic reasons. And then when things start happening in the scene, the director needs to switch to what language the audience actually speaks. So it's the same thing in Mark where he gives these completely non-essential passing phrases in Aramaic. But for all that, there are some theologians who believe that there's an Aramaic source under all this, and they'll never stop chasing that white whale of an original lost Aramaic gospel. Good luck to them, I say. Another argument that came up was Alexander and Rufus. Mark appears to assume that his audience would know the sons of Simon of Cyrene by name. Now, first of all, these arguments about Mark assuming knowledge in his readers are inherently dangerous because someone could easily respond like, Okay, so they know Alexander and Rufus, but they need to be told what preparation day means. You know, they need to be reminded at Mark 14.43 that Judas was one of the 12. So it's a bit risky, but I did explore in the Mark episode the possibility that these two names would have been significant to Mark's congregation. And they could have even been famous people in the area that were deceased by the time the gospel was written. That's a possibility. I mean, you could also look at things like Mark made up the names to make it seem like his passion narrative was well corroborated. I mean, it's not unprecedented. The Gospel of John did something similar at the crucifixion scene by having the author swear to its veracity as an eyewitness. So the point is, there's more than one way to look at this than to assume that the author's mention of obscure names must necessarily indicate an early date. And lastly, we talked about Christopher Zeichman's argument that the Render Unto Caesar episode suggests an environment in which the Fiscus Judaicus, or Jewish tax, was being levied. Something that didn't begin until the year 71, well, the Fiscus Judaicus was collected well into the 4th century. And all this tax argument does is provide evidence that Mark was written later than supposed. I think you'll agree that it doesn't really place an upper limit on Mark. So here, we've addressed the theologians' arguments briefly, but I want to present more evidence of a later date for Mark. Because in addition to the anachronisms, in addition to what I said about the author's treatment of Jews, there's also a lot more in the Gospel of Mark that doesn't suggest the immediacy of an eyewitness or even a writer operating in that first or second generation. There's a lot in Mark that can be considered legendary material or editorial comments in the style of a chronicle. And we should discuss some of these and we benefit from a long list of them that was compiled by the scholar J.V.M. Sturdy, 
one of the heroes of this telebroadcast. And he believed in late dates for all the New Testament books, but he only put Mark around 80 AD. But here's some internal stylistic evidence that he gives that the book can't be too early. Things like the temptation of Jesus. Mark says very briefly that the Holy Spirit threw Jesus out into the desert and he was in the desert for 40 days being tried by the adversary and he was with the beasts and the angels were ministering to him. That's all he says. It sounds like he's summarizing another written source, a legendary source at that, which it would be unlikely to expect in the lifetime of Jesus's immediate followers. Now, and further on, after he gives the story of Jesus exercising a demon, Mark says, the report of him straightaway went out everywhere into all the surrounding country of Galilee. This is an editorial comment that's inserted or invented by the author. Because remember from episode four that he's piecing together these miracle stories and exorcism stories and stringing them into a coherent narrative, pearls on a string. So comments like these where he says, the news about Jesus started spreading everywhere, these are statements by a late author who's trying to make this material cohere. Like if this came from an eyewitness source, what did the eyewitness say to the author of Mark? Like, yeah, Jesus exercised the demon. You know, and I'm pretty sure that's right about the time when news about him started spreading out all throughout Galilee. I mean, this is storytelling. Also in the same chapter, Jesus says, let's go elsewhere into the nearby towns so that I can preach there also, because that's what I came for. And right on cue, the author of Mark then says, and he came into the whole of Galilee, preaching in their congregations and throwing out demons. And this story is immediately followed by another set piece tale, that of Jesus healing the man with leprosy. So why did Mark separate these stories with the narrative comment about Jesus coming into the whole of Galilee and preaching and exercising? Why didn't he just put this healing the leper story immediately after Jesus' statement that he, need, he needed to go into the other towns? Uh, stuff like this is evidence the author is not recounting the history of a life out of eyewitness experience. The reality is that he has a collection of short, little, goofy stories, and he's trying to use like a hot glue gun to stick them all together. And the glue in this analogy are these editorial comments. Comments like these suggest a late date in and of themselves. They may not necessarily suggest a second century date, but they certainly suggest a date at some significant remove from the 30s AD or the 40s AD. Uh, we could talk about the story of Jesus healing the paralytic from Mark chapter two. This story, as it's presented in Mark, has had some very obvious editing done to it because right in the middle of this very simple, straightforward recounting of the friends of the paralytic bringing him to Jesus, which is itself based on a story from the Elijah-Elisha cycle, the story's interrupted by a completely unrelated discussion about forgiveness of sins. So again, there had to be some time remove here where the author of Canonical Mark was able to add to a pre-existing story about a healing. We could talk about Mark having Jesus explain the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is a lengthy analogy that Jesus makes to the effect that everyone might hear your message, but it'll only be truly accepted by a select few. And he compares it to a sower who scatters seed everywhere and the plants can only take root in the appropriate type of ground. Well, it's self-explanatory and may in fact be borrowed from similar things that Seneca and Quintilian had written. But in canonical Mark, Jesus is asked to explain the parable, and he does so in extreme detail. This extremely lucid analogy, which one wouldn't think would have to be explained, but the explanation is actually an editorial comment by the author of canonical Mark. In other words, it's secondary to the original text, and it seems directed at clergy. 
I mean, because this parable of the sower seems to have been a major element of the preaching of Mark's church. And here in this section, he's trying to clarify it. It's almost like a training video, like, hi, I'm Jesus Christ. You might remember me from such training videos as Firecrackers, the silent killer. One of the things you're really going to need to know in your career as a church leader is the parable of the sower. So we'll explain it now. Uh, I mean, we can talk about other things like Jesus will tend to rattle off a cluster of sayings linked by a theme or catchword. When he's in his hometown, which is not named as Nazareth, his own family tries to take custody of him. And that gives him the occasion to say things like a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that somehow leads him to anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is guilty of an eternal sin. And from there he gets to whoever does the will of God is my family member. And this is the phenomenon of Jesus as Teddy Ruxpin, where you pull his cord and he spouts these short, pithy phrases, a phenomenon that we'll get very used to when we look at Matthew and Luke. These are indications that the author is writing at some considerable remove from the events and merely trying to find a home for pre-existing sayings. Sayings which need not, by the way, have come from a historical Jesus. Could have just come from any wise schmuck. Could have come from the wandering Christian prophets, as I suspect. Also in the Gospel of Mark, the disciple John says to Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Uh, this is a story that can only make sense after the lifetime of Jesus, because how the hell could anyone be casting out demons in the name of Jesus when, according to this book, hardly anyone knows his true identity? And this has long been noticed. But I think that a story like this is too late to even be second generation. It implies an organized church with someone external to that church performing exorcisms. Also in Mark, Jesus says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ won't lose his reward. Again, a very retrospective comment implies that there's a community of Christians. The parable of the wicked tenants that Jesus recites presupposes the death of Jesus. And not only that, but it also presupposes some lengthy period of theological reflection on that event. The whole passion narrative is infused with legendary materials. I mean, most of it, first of all, happens off screen where there wouldn't logically be any witnesses. And we talked also in episode nine about Mark obviously having changed the date of Jesus's crucifixion, which indicates that he was working off an early and clearly legendary source. And lastly, the demons exercised by Jesus call him the son of David. And then later in the gospel, Jesus himself is made to argue that the Messiah is not the son of David. And what all this indicates is that the author of Mark is operating at some remove from the events he's describing and working off, and in some cases, contradicting earlier sources. And some, like the radical critic Earl Doherty, like the theologian Edgar Goodspeed, have tried to compensate for this by putting Mark in the 90s, but there's nothing for it. You have to place it in the second century at least. Otherwise, it's similar to Pliny's letter in that all these things we pointed out are surprisingly innovative for the first century, and you gotta go out of your way to explain why they show up so early. Whereas if you put it in the second century, where the author is fending off rival Christian prophets on one side and the early rabbis on the other, then all these things fall into place. But finally, we can now speak somewhat about the attribution of the Gospel of Mark, how it received its name. When it comes to the fundamentalist, they, again, take the testimony of the ancient Christian authorities at face value. Mark was the follower and interpreter of Peter, and he's the same as John Mark from Acts, and the same Mark who's mentioned in Paul's letters in the first letter of Peter. Some mainstream theologians also believe this, or at least they say that they don't find a good reason to disbelieve it. 
Others actually say that the gospel may have been written by a man named Mark, but he was a guy no one ever heard of. But his name, which was a very common one in the empire, was attached to this book. So later Christians like Papias had to figure out who this cat was, and they decided that, well, this must be John Mark from Acts, and so on. But the usual mainstream view, the kind of the E.P. Sanders approach, is to believe that the Gospel of Mark was anonymous originally, because it was written at a time before there was really a strong demand for written Gospels and other authoritative writings. You know, according to them, the Gospels existed since the first century, but weren't really valued and reverenced until about the mid-second century. And at that time, there developed also a need to establish the authority of these books, and so they selected the name Mark, using very much the same guesswork process that David Trobish talked about that we discussed last time. And this is actually something close to what I believe. Now, you may be wondering, if this was the case, why didn't they select some better-known figure or more authoritative figure as the author to this gospel? Why did they have to go hunting for a disciple of Peter when they could have just said it was the gospel of Peter? Well, it turns out that there was already a gospel of Peter at the time this title was selected. And this, by the way, is proof of the exact timeline in which the New Testament was compiled, which would be the late 2nd century. Because Justin Martyr, back around 160, quotes something from what we now know as the Gospel of Peter about how Jesus was mockingly placed on a judgment seat during his passion. He doesn't say it's from the Gospel of Peter. In fact, he treats it just like he does any other Gospel material. He accepts it as true. However, when he gave his allusion to Mark's Gospel, the story about how Jesus renamed the two brothers. He does this in the very same book. He says that he got that story from something called the memoirs of Peter. This is what seems to have happened. What we now know as Mark's gospel at some time prior to 160 was assigned the name memoirs of Peter. Around the same time, another gospel started being called the gospel of Peter, possibly by a school of heretics. This document would become famous as the Gospel of Peter before the New Testament collection was compiled. So when the New Testament collection was being compiled, the editors couldn't choose the name Gospel of Peter, which was now associated with heretics anyway. So they did the next best thing. They named it after Peter's son, his follower and interpreter. And they said, but you know what? It's not that great of a gospel. It's not in order. But what do you expect from something that was written by a mere follower and interpreter? You know, but hey, you got the Gospel of Matthew right before it. That's written by an eyewitness. Has a lot of the same stuff too. Then right after it, you got another secondary gospel, Luke, written by another camp follower, but still good. But then you got John, another eyewitness. So you can't go wrong. And this explains not only the name of the book, but also its appearance in the collection. The two non-eyewitness accounts are folded into the two eyewitness accounts. And so the Gospel of Mark begins its new life. It's a kind of a toy that sits on the shelf that the kid doesn't often want to play with. It's like Woody from Toy Story. So it needs to sit in the toy chest, but sort of at the bottom of it. And the world would have to wait all the way up until the triumphant entry of George Washington's weary soldiers into New York, all the way until the foundation of the first prison was laid in the penal colony of Botany Bay, until Mozart composed his final symphony, until the Empress Maria Theresa passed over to receive her final reward for the Gospel of Mark to be truly rediscovered. To 
Today on the Bright in the Corners miniseries, we focused on the Gospel of Mark and we'll continue our way through the New Testament in order from now, I would have thought. We discussed dating and authorship because dating matters. It's practically our central focus. And we'll continue our Bright in the Corners miniseries, the broad overview on the New Testament and its individual books. We commence with the Gospel of Matthew next time. And at the outset, we asked whether we can have any confidence in the traditional methods that have been used to date the Gospel of Mark. And the answer is no. And in the name of St. Candida, we declare the Gospel of Mark to be late and spurious, and we declare that the methods used by the theologians to assign a date to it are nothing more than an absolute load of monkey crap. Thank you for listening. This criticism is ended. Go in peace. What other stories of mythology do you think of as historical reality? 